0: Hebrews twenty twenty, we see Jesus increment 130, and even though he was the son, yet he learned obedience through the things he suffered. That'll be our central focus today as we continue in Hebrews and as we look at Hebrews 5, 1 through 9, especially verses 8 and 9 of Hebrews chapter 5. And we'll begin, as usual, with a word of prayer. Father, as we've been led to entitle this series, We See Jesus, and as we know that we see him with the eyes of our heart, we pray, along with the Apostle Paul, that our eyes of our heart will be enlightened and that we will be Awakened also to the glorious significance of your Son, that we will see him today as the founder and source of age abiding salvation and as our great archpriest, and that we may be impressed by the Holy Spirit about just how significant those glorious realities are and how beneficial to us. I pray that you'll use this message to lift. Many up to restore, to deliver, to preserve, to save, to encourage, to challenge, and most of all, to bring your grace to bear upon all the listeners. We ask this in Christ's name, Amen. In Hebrews 5 1 through 9, our working translation looks like this so far, and we'll be working from it today. Every archpriest selected from human beings, is appointed to act on behalf of human beings in things that pertain to God, and who is able to deal gently with the ignorant and those who are led astray, since he himself experiences weakness in many ways. And because of this, this weakness which sometimes leads to sin, just as he offers sacrifices for the sins of the people, He must also do so for himself, and no one takes this honor on himself, but is called by God, just as Aaron was. Similarly, the Messiah did not promote himself to be archpriest. On the contrary, the one who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That from Psalm 2.7, which was also quoted in Hebrews 1.5. And he also said in another place, that is in Scripture, Psalm 110.4 this time, Septuagint 109.4, you are a priest for the age, just like Melchizedek. This is the pivot upon which this whole argument turns. You are my son, You are a priest. You are my son, meaning you are declared to be king. You are a priest for the age, just like Melchizedek. And this is going to occupy the central section of this homily. And the PT is going to take a lot of care to prepare his listeners and readers to get to it and to understand it. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, meaning during his earthly life, he offered both prayerful entreaties and supplications with a strong outcry and tears to the one who was able to save him out from the realm of death and was heard because of his reverential obedience, although he was the Son, speaking of hebrews one two the Son in whom God has spoken in these last days with definitive finality. Although he was the son, he learned this obedience. He learned this obedience through suffering. And being made complete, he became to those who obey him the source of age-abiding salvation. Now, today's increment is going to consist of a series of circles. Each circle is going to get smaller and smaller, and we're going to be getting closer and closer to the heart of the matter. This will be a style of teaching that I'm not used to, but one which I want to creatively enter into today. And it's going to give the Holy Spirit the opportunity to reveal and to illuminate you. Now, that which is called the Christ event, and we've called it that many times, other theologians do, the Christ event, takes in several features. It takes in, first of all, the incarnation of the eternal word, also known as the eternal Son made flesh. It takes in the earthly life of the eternal Son, the earthly lifelong obedience of the Son made flesh his obedience that culminated in the offering of himself without blemish to God through the eternal spirit as God's lamb. This act of self-offering constituted the completion of the son's obedience to God, his father's will and intention. His father's will is called the mystery of God's intention in Ephesians 1 9 and 10 and that intention is explicitly to sum up all things in the heavens and on earth in Christ his Messiah also known as his son Ephesians 1:10, compared with Ephesians 1 3 and 1 6 so it is rightly understood that as God's universally saving will. God's will is God's universally saving will. You can't separate those two. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6, I refer that to you because God our Savior is willing to be the Savior, willing to save all humankind, to bring all humankind to the knowledge of the truth. For this reason, the Son who is called the man from heaven in 1 Corinthians 15, came to earth, became flesh, and lived all his life in obedience to his father in order to be God's lamb, the one who would take away the sin of the world, John 1.29. The Christ event, then, takes in the passion of the Son, and centrally, the crucifixion and the death of the Son. Those are the central events of the Christ event. That's why Paul said, I determined to know nothing that's detached from Jesus Christ and him crucified. So there is the crucifixion and the death of the Son. The death of the Son, in which he suffered the wages of sin for everyone, Hebrews two nine in connection with Romans 6.23, was that by which the world was reconciled to God. Romans 5.10, 2 Corinthians 5.19. I'll say that again. The death of the Son, in which he suffered suffered the wages of sin for everyone, was that by which the world was reconciled to God. The Christ event, however, did not end with the Son's death. It took in his burial, according to the scriptures. Then his resurrection from the dead. And Hebrews 13 puts it this way in verse 20. The God of peace brought him up and out of the realm of the dead with a view to the blood of the age-abiding covenant. The Christ event did not even end with the resurrection, for then Jesus ascended above all the heavens, and he did this after 40 days of post-resurrection appearances, which are recorded in the Gospels and in Acts and First Corinthians. So the Christ event did not end with Jesus' resurrection, for then he ascended above all the heavens in Ephesians 121. And he was seated at the right hand of the Father's glorious majesty. Hebrews 1.3, and infinite power in Matthew 26.64. But not until, and this is central to Hebrews, not until he had entered the Holy of Holies in heaven to become the mercy seat, as 1 John 2.1 says. Jesus Christ is called our propitiation or our mercy seat. Having obtained age-abiding redemption, Hebrews 9.12, for us through his own blood, in Hebrews 9.12, by suffering outside the gate, says Hebrews 13.12. More specifically, by suffering or enduring death. And I put a capital D with death there because... It's speaking not just of physical death, but the wages of sin for everyone, experiencing the wages of sin for everyone while far from God. I accept that translation, choris to thau rather than karis to thau in Hebrews two nine, far from God. And also verse ten of Hebrews two. By this suffering says Hebrews 2.10. By this suffering, says Hebrews 2.10, God, because of whom and through whom all things exist, made Jesus, the founder of salvation, perfect or complete. Remember, 56 of the Psalms begins with the phrase, aistotelos, which means regarding completion. Hebrews regards The completion of Jesus Christ as the founder of salvation, as the source of age-abiding salvation, and his completion not only as a perfect and once and for all sacrifice and lamb, but also his completion as great arch-priest. So to be founder of this salvation, and that's the Greek phrase ton, T-O-N, the article And then archagon, A-R-C-H-E-G-O-N. Ton archagon, that's the word used in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Ton archagon, and then the word tase, again the article, and then soterias. I love that word too, S O T. E-R-I-A-S. That means salvation. To tes auton. A-U-T-O-N. Our salvation. The founder of our salvation. He was made perfect or made complete in keeping with the theme regarding completion. So according to Hebrews 6, make that Hebrews 2.10, it says that the founder of salvation, or to be the founder of salvation, of the many children who are to be brought to glory, Jesus had to suffer. For those children had to be redeemed at a price. First Corinthians six twenty seven twenty three makes that explicit. 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 1 Corinthians 7.23. According to Hebrews 5.9, which links very strongly with Hebrews 2.10, after the son had suffered, after he had suffered, and that means after he had tasted death for all human beings, after he suffered, he had become, he became the source of age-abiding salvation this time not archegon, but another word atios a i or itios a i t i o s itios and then sotirias same word for salvation itios sotirias and then aionio our favorite one of our favorite words here a i o n i o which means sometimes translated eternal, but I'm going to translate it age-abiding. That's capital A-G-E hyphen abiding, age-abiding. And for reasons that we've already explained and we'll explain further down the road, no doubt. So he became the source of age-abiding salvation. So there's really two different terms here. The founder of salvation in Hebrews 2.10, whom God willed had to suffer to be completed as that founder, then the source or the cause of eternal salvation or age-abiding salvation, as we should call it, which he became having suffered. So the founder would have to be perfected or completed by suffering, and having suffered, he became the source or the cause of age-abiding salvation. Now, the founder of salvation pertains to Jesus who needed to be perfected or completed through suffering, completed to be something that he was not before. The source of age-abiding salvation pertains to Jesus as having suffered and thus having become complete. So Hebrews, again, is all about completion. It's a very important word in Hebrews. In fact, if I were to title it by another title other than We See Jesus, I might even be tempted to call it Hebrews Regarding Completion. Ace totelos. And again, we already looked at this before. 56 of the Psalms, 56 of the 150 of the Psalms in the Greek Old Testament are titled Regarding Completion. Now, God deemed that the Son, as the founder of the salvation of the many sons and daughters, I'm calling upon everyone who's listening to this message to be more attentive than they ever have before because we're going in a way that I've never quite experimented on before. Big circle, smaller circle, smaller circle, smaller circle, till we get to the heart of the matter. And that's going to involve pulling in a whole lot of other scriptures from and some of which can be studied from previous studies. So the founder of salvation belongs is a title that pertains to Jesus who needed to be perfected through suffering. The source of age-abiding salvation pertains to Jesus as having suffered and thus having become complete. God deemed or decreed that the Son, as the founder of the salvation of the many sons and daughters, Hebrews 2.10, whom he intended to bring to glory, he needed to be completed through suffering. Through his suffering, he brought all of humanity into salvific solidarity with himself. All of humanity into a sal- salvific unity or solidarity with himself. That's why I have such a problem with today's ideologies that separate and segregate blocks of human human beings to be separated and divided and mutually polarized and hating each other. It's because of the misunderstanding, not understanding. It's a flight from the inside of the gospel or an oversight, a horrible oversight what the gospel teaches because through his suffering Jesus brought all of humanity into a salvific solidarity with himself and this is part of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and of the universal impact of his crucifixion, death, resurrection, and exaltation for his exaltation also has to do with our great salvation which we must not neglect In Hebrews 2.10, then, the son is called the founder, Archegos, of the salvation of the many sons and daughters whom God called into glory, whom Jesus calls my brothers and sisters. In Hebrews 5.9, remember, a strong linkage between 2.10 and 5.9. In Hebrews 5.9, the son was completed through that suffering, and thus he became the source Aetios, aetios, of age-abiding salvation to those who obey him. To those who obey him, of course, is a tripping point. It's a stumbling stone. And so we have been teaching around that phrase to give it meaning and and to give you understanding about it. Those who obey him, and we've already looked at this in previous increments before I revisited the doctrine of the Israel of God, those who obey him in Hebrews 5.9 must be the same category of people who are called the many sons and daughters whom God calls into glory. Now that's Hebrews 2.10, really 2.10 to 13 grabs it up. And they are all of humanity in solidarity with him. This is how it is in future world. If you were to see future world or be in future world right now, you would recognize people but not recognize them because you're not going to see anyone in any way affected by their old false selves. So you might not recognize them at all in one sense. In another sense, you may. Because if you ever knew their true self, you'll be able to see it reflected in glory. But in any case, this is how it is in future world all of humanity is obedient to the sun there they are all the spirits of justified people made what perfect or complete and that again we'll see that in hebrews 12:22 to 24 a phenomenal passage which in one way is climactic all of humanity in future world is obedient to the sun as the spirits of justified people made complete through glorification, how are people who are called justified spirits made perfect, as Hebrews 12:23 describes them 22 and 23. That, how do the spirits of justified people be made perfect? They're made perfect through glorification. For as many as God justifies those he also glorifies? Or we could say, as many as God justifies those whom he always completes through the act of glorification. Both justification and glorification are acts of God. They got nothing to do with you, your strength, your power, your personality, your charisma, or what you think you are or what you think you can do. None of it. Or me either. So how do we... And and listen carefully because I want to give away the store first before I reiterate how I got there. God is the justifier of the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. The ungodly are all those for whom Christ died in Romans 5.6. Therefore, God justifies all. That's explicit in Romans 5.18 and in Romans 4.5 and in Romans 4.25. Christ was raised from the dead for our justification. God also justified his own son, Jesus, according to the right translation of Romans 3.26 justified Jesus on the basis of Jesus' own faithfulness. But in justifying Jesus, he justified all of humanity in him. And so again, those who obey him, in Hebrews 5, 9, must be the same as the many sons and daughters whom God calls into glory. And that is all of humanity in solidarity with him, with Jesus. This is how it is in future world once again. All of humanity is obedient to the Son as the spirits of justified people made perfect or complete through glorification. Justification being the act of the justice of God, the judge of all. And glorification is the act of God, the all-powerful God. In Romans, he is called God who justifies God who justifies, in Romans 8.33. And he's even called God, who justified Jesus on account of Jesus' own faithfulness, in Romans 3.26. He's also called, once again, God, who justifies the ungodly, Romans 4.5, which are all those for whom Christ died, in Romans 5.6. So, I recommend, if you want to follow up on this more without me having to reiterate the 10 messages that constitute this see the series called Romans colon doctrines colon justification a series that was proclaimed after Romans or taught after Romans now let's speaking of Romans let's bring in from Romans something that's even more reasonable to do now that we have seriously considered the hypothesis of estheus which we studied in our last increment. That hypothesis proposes that Paul endorsed Hebrews and that he actually wrote the dispatch note in Hebrews 13, 22 to 25. And that's a note that appears after the homily. Now, if Paul did indeed endorse this homily, it's because he read it and we could say endorsed it and then sent it with his own approval as an epistle so it's a homily within an epistle authorized by Paul. So even though Hebrews was probably most certainly actually not written by Paul, it was nevertheless endorsed by him. And so Romans and Hebrews have to have some kind of affinity. In Romans Paul teaches that the obedience now we're dealing with obedience of Jesus Christ in Hebrews 5:8 we're dealing with it again in Hebrews 10 5 through 10. In Romans, Paul teaches that the obedience of the one man, and I call him the Sir, single inclusive representative, the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, resulted in many. Notice that many is found in Romans 5:19 as well as Hebrews 2:10, many being made righteous. Romans 5:19. But in Romans 5:18 and we've looked at this so many times we ought to be able to grasp it a little bit Paul had said that the one righteous act the one righteous act dikaioma of the one man Jesus Christ has the result of the justification unto life of all all have justification unto life a salvation in other words due to the one righteous act of Jesus Christ. That one righteous act is equivalent to his obedience in 5.19. Now, I'm doing this whole thing here without a reference to the first man, Adam, but only to Jesus. So, the many who are made righteous in Romans 5.19 correspond to and are in fact the same group as all who receive justification and life as the result of the one righteous act of Jesus. The one righteous act of Jesus that results in justification for all is equivalent to the obedience of Jesus, which is meritorious in that it merited all being made righteous in 519. So many equals all, interchangeably in that regard. We've already looked at that before. If you want to see further proof of that, then look at Mark 10, 45, Matthew 20, 28, and then hook that up with 1 Timothy 2, 6. That he gives his life as a ransom for many means he gives his life as a ransom for all. If you look at a crowd and you see the whole crowd, you can say, there they all are, or you can say, wow, there's many there. It's all many equals all. All equals many. And that's the case in Romans 5, 18 and 19. So now the one righteous act of Jesus is equivalent to the obedience of Jesus to the extent of the death of the cross, as Philippians 2, 8 puts it, bringing in Philippians 2, 8. So the one righteous act, also known as the obedience of of the single inclusive representative of all humankind, Jesus Christ, resulted in the making righteous, A.K.A. the justification of all human beings. This is going to be in print, and I've already edited it four times, and we'll edit it three more times, no doubt, so that you can make it, it can be clearer through reading and seeing through the eye gate, through the ear gate, both. The seeing eye and the hearing ear are gifts from God in Proverbs 20 and verse 12, so we'll use them both to get this doctrine down. Next, regarding the many sons and daughters whom God calls into glory. Again, Hebrews 2.10 and really 2.10 to 13. Consider Romans 8.30. Consider Romans 8.30 where Paul writes this, as many as God calls notice it calls into glory here as many as God calls where into glory obviously as many as God calls he glorifies now i can just see paul reading hebrews and saying yeah that correlates with what i wrote in romans etc so consider romans 830 where paul says as many as God calls he justifies and as many as God justifies, he glorifies. In other words, he glorifies just exactly the same number of people whom he justifies. So if he justifies all in Romans 5.18, then he glorifies all, ultimately, does he not? And if he, glorifies, if he justifies the ungodly in Romans 4.5, for whom Christ died, and that's everybody, in Romans 4.5 and Romans 5.6, compared with 1 Peter 3.18, he died the righteous one for the unrighteous, then if God justifies the ungodly and he glorifies everyone whom he justifies, does not God glorify the ungodly? The reasoning here is almost mathematical. You, it, it's 2 plus 2 actually equals 4, contrary to math today which says something different. The one righteous act, also known as, a.k.a. the obedience of the serve all humankind, Jesus Christ, resulted in the making righteous of all human beings. Again, next. The many sons and daughters whom God calls into glory in Hebrews 2.10 are the same as those who are called as many as God calls, he justifies in Romans 8.30. And as many as God justifies, he glorifies still in Romans 8.30. As many as God calls, dot, 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 he glorifies, skipping over, justifies in Romans 8.30. This goes back even further, though, if you really want to get technical about Romans 8.30 and tell me I skipped something. It says, as many as God foreknew, he called, justified, and glorified. Those whom God foreknew are all human beings in solidarity with his Son. Why? Because First 1 Peter 1.20 says, Christ was foreknown before the founding of the universe. Christ was foreknown before the founding of the universe, and that means that not only was he foreknown in himself, he was foreknown as in solidarity with all of humanity before the founding of the universe. And then, secondly, he was revealed in these last days for us, or literally in these last times for us. 1 Peter 1.20 is incalculably important. So that Christ was, quote, revealed in these last times for us, chimes together with Hebrews 1.2, that God spoke in the Son in these last Days. And it chimes with Hebrews 9.26 that Christ appeared once in the juncture of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9.28 goes on to say that Christ's appearance was to, quote, bear the sins of many or carry away the sins of many. 1 John 2, 1-2 says that means the sins of the whole world. And that's the world of humankind over the course of all time. Now that reminds me of a theme that I was hoping to study called the redemption of history. It also reminds me that only yesterday I found out that Robert M. Duran, one of my favorite authors and theologians, has passed into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. He did so in January. I didn't know until yesterday. He was in, and may he rest in peace, as I say almost tongue-in-cheek, because the peace he's resting in now is remarkable, no doubt, and his joy complete as he sees the Savior he wrote and spoke about all his life. So, see you soon, Robert or Bob, as you're called, despite the fact that you were evidently a Brewers fan in your life. But he was going to write a third volume, and so I selfishly became very disappointed in his passing because I've read the two first books of his book, his series called. The Trinity and History, which are the most, among the most, probably in the top ten books I've ever read in my life. The Trinity and History, parts one and two. He was in the process of writing part three, so I scrambled all over the place to find out where's part three because the title was going to be The Redemption of History. And so I said, who's going to take the mantle? Who's going to write the rest of it? And then I finally found out that his third volume in the Trinity in History called The Redemption of History is At the Printers. So thank you Father for that. Can't wait to read it. Once again a tribute to our brother in Christ Robert Michael Duran. He was also very responsible for collecting and chronicling all of Bernard Lonergan's works and just finished the 25th and last volume of that collection too before he passed into the presence of the Lord. So, a little side note there. Now, if many are made righteous means all receive justification and life through Jesus Christ one righteous act, also known as his obedience, then those who obey him, who is the source of age-abiding salvation, are all human beings. Moreover, the many sons and daughters whom God calls to glory are also, ultimately, all human beings. Moreover, the many sons and daughters, therefore, I'm going to say that again, whom God calls to glory, are ultimately all human beings. And this is reasonable on many levels, not least of which is that when Jesus became like his siblings, his brothers and sisters, by becoming blood and flesh, Hebrews 2.14 and 2.17, the Son, the eternal Son of God, did not become like some human beings. He became like all human beings of blood and flesh. We would have to say, then, that those who obey the Son are all human beings in the ultimate sense. We would also have to say that those who are presently obedient to the Son through faith, even during this clash of the ages, the present clash of the ages, they who believe or obey the Son now in actual practicality have the privilege of some measure of the experience, the experience, the experience of the age-abiding salvation of which Jesus is the founder, source, and cause. So to obey the Son is to obey the one who sent him. There's another level of reasoning. To obey the Son is to obey the one who sent him. For as Jesus says, whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Mark, no, let's make that Matthew 10.40b. And in John 10.30, Jesus says, the Father and I are one. Consequently, those who obey the Son are those who obey the Father. But the Son obeyed the Father. And the Son embodies all of humanity. So, in the ultimate sense, all of humanity obeyed the Father in the Son. Consequently, all human beings were crucified with the Son, who was obedient to the extent of the death of the cross. So, again, consequently, all human beings were crucified with the Son, buried with him, raised with him. Why? For as in Adam all die, in Christ, all will be made alive. So Galatians 2.20 can hook up with 1 Corinthians 15.22 in that regard. Moreover, in 2 Corinthians 5.14, when one, that is Christ, died for all, then all died. So that when he arose, that is for our justification in Romans 4.25... By an act of God, all of humanity, and in fact, all of creation arose with Him, justified, rectified, redeemed, reconciled. So, what am I doing here? I ask that question all the time in doing and living theology. What am I doing here? What am I doing today? I'm preaching the gospel the good news of God about his son. Again, what am I doing here? I ask again. I'm doing a theological exegesis of Hebrews and while doing it, preaching the gospel. Still again, I ask a third time, what am I doing here? Preparing those who are also studying Hebrews with me for the warning passages that are given within a circle that is concentric with the larger circle of Jesus Christ's universally saving significance and the universal redemptive age-abiding impact of the cross. In other words, when we come to the severest warnings in Scripture, probably, arguably speaking, Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, we are not dealing with the possibility of the loss of age-abiding salvation, though we are dealing with the possibility and a frightening one, of losing the experience of salvation through an act of apostasy. So the third thing I'm doing is preparing you for this very important warning and exhortation section that will happen between 510 and 620. 510 refers to Jesus as the priest after the order of Melchizedek or like Melchizedek, so does 620. And in between, there is this exhortation in which there are warnings that have been historically pretty frightening to people and historically also misinterpreted by many interpreters. Now, that's all the things I'm doing when I'm teaching this word. Now, this lands us in closing, squarely in the historical position of the recipient's of the Hebrews homily, the first receivers of it, the first readers. What happens if they disobey the Son? That's the question. Now, Jesus' saving significance is not only correctly called universal. It's properly proclaimed to be age-abiding, and that means it extends throughout the rest of the evil age and into, into and throughout the endless age to come in future world. But what about the audience in the Hebrews homily? What if they apostatize, disobey the son and dishonor him through an act of apostasy? For them, that would mean returning to an abrogated system of sacrifices in the old Jerusalem temple and even a going back on their confession of Jesus, the son of God. What happens? if they disobey the son and dishonor him through an act of apostasy, like the disobedient and obstinate desert generation who all ended up face down in the desert or swallowed up by an open place in the desert? Well, the answer to that question is that the same as in the case of Galatians, which Paul wrote, similar to the case of Galatians, They were on the verge of defection and desertion of him who called them by the grace of Christ, and they were moving toward the acceptance of a cursed gospel, which is not good news at all, said Paul. And the males were going to be submitting to ritual circumcision. If they did, Paul said, Christ would then come to mean nothing to them. That's a terrible thing to have happen. You can imagine how much you love Jesus Christ now, but imagine seeing yourselves five, down, five years down the road and he doesn't mean anything to you anymore. That's the result of the act of apostasy. doesn't mean that age-abiding salvation won't scoop you up in the end, but it does not mean that you're going to have a very good time on earth. They will have drifted off course from grace, according to Galatians five four and thus will have effectively lost the experience of salvation in this evil age. That's not a good thing. Now, it may seem, as I said before, that I'm writing all around the subject here. And if I am, so what? Because we're circling and circling until we get to the heart of the matter, smaller and smaller circles. In fact, I'm circling the subject with smaller and smaller circles to get to the heart of the matter. So I'm going to... Close, and close this increment and begin the next increment with an enumeration of the general elements of the Christ event. I've reduced it to ten. Here they are. The incarnation of the eternal word, also known as the eternal Son, made flesh. That's one. Two, the earthly, lifelong obedience of the Son made flesh. Obedience that culminated in three the passion of the son, the crucifixion and the death of the son, the offering of himself without blemish to God through the eternal spirit. Four, his burial. And then five, his resurrection from the dead when the God of peace brought him up and out of the realm of the dead. Six, his post-resurrection appearances. Seven, his ascension and entry through the torn veil into the heavenly holy of holies through his own blood. Eighth, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. And let's make it just nine, not ten. Ninth, he was crowned as the great king of the heavenly Jerusalem and designated a priest or archpriest for the age like Melchizedek. Let's just make it nine for now. But is this a correct chronology is my final question. Is this, these nine elements, are they placed in a correct chronological order? And we'll attempt to answer that question in the next increment, namely increment 131. So Father, we thank you for this opportunity and may all of our circular thinking draw us to the center, which is Jesus. And may we see him with the eyes of our heart. And seeing him, may we be more and more conformed into his image. For this is what we are predestined for, according to the scripture in Romans 8.30, 8.29. And because you have foreknown us, you have called us justified and glorified us in him. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.